The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. We're joined by a writer, Danny Rubin. His specialty is screenplays, and he's had success in particular. For example, the film Groundhog Day, which he co-wrote with the late Harold Ramis, and it starred Bill Murray. Andy McDowell and Chris Elliott. Groundhog Day is considered one of the greatest comedy movies and was added to the United States National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. He also co-wrote the screenplays to films like Hear No Evil, SFW, and for the stage, he wrote the book for a musical to Groundhog Day. Danny Rubin also wrote a book entitled how to write Groundhog Day. He's even taught screenwriting. So, welcome to Danny Rubin. Thanks, Paul. Great to have you here. So, where are you in the world right now? <laughs> well, the GPS would say I am located in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is where I live. What brought you to Santa Fe? Oh, I was, uh, Louise, my wife and I were looking for um, an exit strategy out of Los Angeles. And this was the first good idea to come along. <laughs> and that was about 25 years ago. So this is where we, we just sort of planted roots and made our home. A second ago, I said uh, about Groundhog Day being named a culturally significant film. Did you ever dream that one day something you wrote would be so culturally relevant um, well, no, I guess not. But when you're young and, and ambitious and, and, uh, you know, it's very hard writing and it's very hard breaking into the industry too. And so you tell yourself all kinds of things. So <laughs> I don't know if I ever would have predicted that it was, I would do anything that was, uh, you know, would ever become part of the, the language and be considered culturally significant. But, uh, that was my ambition to try and do something that was actually good. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you had never had a Groundhog Day, that is to say, you had never had a film that was that successful, do you think you would have stayed at it? I don't know. I mean, probably as long as people were paying me to do it, it's kind of a, it's a satisfying process. I like writing screenplays and, um, it's kind of fun being in the movie business, and um, even if it's only with one toe in it, it's still kind of fun. The success opened up a lot of other doors, so I was able to do teaching, which was a way of being part of a community and, um, you know, to share what you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's opened opportunities for speaking places and meeting people, and and so you know, my life is bigger than just writing screenplays. And I think having a, a such a significant um, piece of work under my belt when I was younger, you know, helped open other doors that, that made me feel like I was living a full life. So I don't know. I don't know where things would have led otherwise. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> Who would know? Right. <laughs> well, why screenplays? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, for one thing, I did a lot of things when I was in my early 20s and and if anybody had decided to 
to start paying me to write songs or play guitar or uh, um, be a film editor or a bunch of other things that I was uh, pursuing at the time, that would have been great. All of that would have been fine. I remember in, when I was in graduate school up at Northwestern, I had was keeping a journal and I wrote down what I really decided what I was really looking for professionally. And that was just to be in a creative atmosphere, um, working with people who were really good at what they did. That was it. I didn't really care what field it was. Hmm. The other thing, um, screenwriting, I've always written as a way of expressing ideas. And I guess I realized that I, I'm not a very expansive writer. I don't like to write a lot of details about the atmosphere. I like to kind of get to the point. And I found that screenwriting is a very good medium for doing that. And I, I found it was, it, it suited my skills and it, um, and my sensibilities and it was fun. So that's how I kind of kept up with it anyway. You say it's fun, but is writing difficult? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are parts of it where it feels like you're just pushing a stone up a hill or you're not even moving. You're just standing there pushing on the stone, <laughs> looking at the hill. And it's very difficult. But there are other parts that it's more like gliding. It's just, just pure pleasure because because the ideas are flowing and they all make sense and they all contribute to each other in, in a singular way. And so it's both of those things. Who would you say taught you the most about writing? Oh, honestly, um, me, I think I, I came at it with a lot of ignorance and, and I kept just spilling it out and looking at it and trying to figure out why it wasn't better <laughs> or finding things that I liked and telling myself, I am amazing. I should keep doing this. You know, it, it was a lot of that. And I think that there's a lot of that for every writer to really teach themselves. Outside of that, I, I've gotten a handful of, of really useful lessons here and there. I, I remember when I was in my twenties, I lived in Chicago and, and saw an awful lot of plays. And one of the plays I saw was a David Mamet play called Duck Variations. And I loved that because it, it, it taught me a great writing lesson. The whole, the whole play was a series of short scenes between two men, two old men sitting on a park bench talking about ducks. <laughs> mm. And, and that, that was the whole play. But what, what the lesson I learned was that they, in talking about ducks, we learned everything about their philosophies and their attitudes about life, and their, their joys and their sorrows and disappointments, and for each of them and in relation to each other by talking about ducks. And it was, it was just um, a, a wonderful lesson in writing that you don't have to hit something head on and just talk about what you're thinking. But you can use uh, an uninvolved <laughs> object or idea <laughs> as being the thing that people talk about. And that's really their, um, I don't know, the wall that they're bouncing themselves against so that, that, that we get to learn about them. 
So anyway, that, that's fair. There you go. There's one lesson. But it was like, it's like that, I think. You go through life and you, you see things and you hear things and they have little influences and you say, oh, I want to try that. Um, but, but it's still the writer in the room teaching himself, teaching herself. I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. I wish I had a mentor. I would have loved that. I would have loved to have discovered one person who said, I want your career or I want to be able to write like you. Show me what you do. But nobody writes like me. Everybody writes like them. And it, uh, I never assumed that there would be somebody out there like that either. So I wasn't pursuing a mentor. But I kept my eyes open and I thought, boy, that would be great. And, and then I wake up and I'm an adult and I'm already doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so when you're writing or you're brainstorming or whatever and you get a crazy idea, how does Danny Rubin react to that? Oh, well, I, I immediately start taking notes on it to see where it's leading. And then I get a sense of its size. You know, what is this? Is this a joke? Is it a gag? Is it a sketch? Is it a movie? Is it a play? Is it a short story? Is it a amusing anecdote I can tell at parties? <laughs> what is the use and proportion of this brilliant idea I just had? Usually I write it down um, and categorize it in some way, like random idea <laughs> or good good idea for a radio play or good premise for a movie and um and usually i'll never see it again but every now and then some some things i just remember and and they when when i need them they come up but my memory is actually pretty bad and i have come to depend on just coming up with new stuff when i need it <laughs> I mean, the other day I got this, this, this idea that I thought was funny about a, a, a voodoo doll who actually reacts to it as if it's acupuncture. And I thought that there's something funny about a voodoo doll getting <laughs> cured. But I, I don't know what to do with an idea like that. But for the first time I had a, a, an outlet, which is my friend Robert Layton, who's a, a cartoonist. I said, this would be a good, the, the size of this idea is about right for a cartoon. I sent it to him and he played with it and, and came up with something. So, you know, that, that would be great to be able to just sort of take my brilliant ideas and throw them to the right people who can do things with them and I don't have to do anything. <laughs> but what usually happens is I'm working on a project and I get to the end and then I say, okay, what's next? What's my next thing? And... I look through some of these old ideas and sometimes one of them starts to take on more weight than the other ones. And that's the one that I wind up working on. We were mentioning before we started the interview, or you were mentioning, that you come from originally Gainesville, Florida. Yes, sir. I'm Go hoping, Gators. <laughs> I'm hoping you can tell the listeners a little bit about your background. I was born a very small child in um, San Francisco, actually, where my uh -huh. parents come from. And by the time I was starting school, we had ended up in Gainesville. My father, uh, an ophthalmologist who was helping to start an ophthalmology department at the University of Florida. So that's where I spent my 12 years of school. And 
I don't know. What, what do you want to know about me? I went to school and then I left. And <laughs> I had friends. That was fine. Um, it was the land of university. And so I was sort of like a, a townie hanging out at, at the university. By the time I was 17, 18, I'd, I'd go, my friends and I would go rush at the fraternities because you know, it's free alcohol and everyone's friendly. <laughs> so by the time I got to college, I was not interested in the frat experience. I felt I was done. <laughs> hmm. Well, were you a movie lover from an er from early on? Um, yeah, I think I was. I was very much a television watcher. And I had shows that I thought were better than others. And I developed opinions and I watched with a lot of interest. I'd read the credits and try and, you know, back um, figure who was involved in making what shows and how they did it and all that. And But a lot of movies also showed on television. And, of course, the movie theater. But, you know, that was back then. I think there were only a couple of movie theaters in town that showed first-run movies. And they... Lemoran for a pretty long time. So after you saw the movie and, you know, it was, it was a couple months before something new would come along. That's the way it was in the sixties in Gainesville, Florida. But I loved movies and I loved, I watched a lot of uh, old movies on television. And one, the summer before college, I had decided that my four years of high school French, were, had been difficult and painstaking and, and, and yet I still didn't feel like I could speak French and I wasn't going to waste all that time. So I, uh, I checked myself into a French immersion program for the summer. And among other things that they had there was an amazing film, uh, Cinematheque. And they showed these, these, you know, Nouvelle Vogue French films every night. And I fancied that I understood them because I understood French so well, but I think I was reading the subtitles. <laughs> so I, I never went to film school, but I did feel that I got a pretty good education between all of the old films I watched on television and um, this experience that one summer of, of starting to be exposed to and learning to like all these films by Bunuel and you know, all of those guys. <laughs> well, can you tell us a few of your favorite movies of all time and why? Well, you know, I'm not really good at that. First of all, I don't ever remember. And I'm sorry. I, I, at one point wrote a bunch of things down so that when people asked me, I would say, Oh yeah, I always liked that movie. Let's see. I know I wrote down Brazil. Brazil was a movie that, I thought just fired on all pistons for me. It was beautiful. It was funny. It was engaging. It was political um, and satirical, but it was wise. I mean, there were a lot of things about it that, that I felt made up for what I consider to be a really good entertainment. So that I always loved kind hearts and coronets. And that had a little bit of, influence on Groundhog Day actually that's that that's the Alec Guinness movie where he murders everybody between him and a, a noble appointment title <laughs> and and it's all very black comedy the way he kills everybody and it's funny and 
Oh, I don't know. The same films everyone likes. I remember when I, the first time I saw Casablanca, I was, first of all, I was just rolling on the floor laughing because I, I'd, I'd heard of it my whole life and it was coming on television. It was the first time I was going to get to see it. I thought, you know, I'm going to watch this. Started watching it and it was so funny because there was a cartoon that I had watched called Secret Squirrel and Morocco Mole. <laughs> and that was basically just Casablanca characters with a squirrel and a mole. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> the Sydney Green Street character <laughs> and Peter Laurie character. Hide me, Rick, hide me. All that stuff. So it felt cartoonish to me the first time I saw it, but it was such an entertaining movie. It just worked so well on every level. I just loved it. I've seen it many times. Anyway, that's a little smattering, but you could probably name almost anything. I'd go, oh, yeah, that was a great movie. <laughs> hmm. When you were writing Groundhog Day, were there any epiphanies that you had, any aha moments that you could share? While I was writing it? Mm -hmm. Or maybe even after. Well, the biggest aha moment was when I got the idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first the first part of the idea, which I wrote back when I was living in Chicago, when I was just brainstorming stuff, was about a guy reliving the same over and over again. And for many people, that's it. That's the whole thing. But at the time, for me, I understood why it was funny, and I understood the advantage that he would have, this character. And I felt like it was an uh, entertaining idea for a movie that I hadn't seen before. But I, I had a, a, you know, a bunch of other ideas I liked just as much. The thing that made this one eventually stand out was when I was working on another idea, just sort of thinking about uh, immortality and wondering if an arrested development type adolescent man <laughs> couldn't outgrow himself, couldn't ever quite get past that and, and grow up. Maybe for some people that, that just wasn't enough time, one lifetime. So I started wondering as a thought experiment whether a person like that, if they lived long enough and they had enough time, maybe they would finally grow up. And I was thinking it through and it seemed kind of cumbersome as a movie idea anytime you try and come up with eternity. But then I remembered the other idea about a guy uh, repeating the same day and I realized that was the biggest aha moment I've ever had, which was that you can have eternity by repeating the same day and I got both of my movies at the same time with all the fun entertainment of uh, a person knowing what's going to happen when nobody else does and the the weight of eternity and what that does to a human life I knew that was a movie and that was a movie I could really uh, dig my teeth into what are your memories of Harold Ramis that you co-wrote the screenplay with? Oh, Harold was great. I mean, Harold w was, anytime I was around him, anytime I observed him, and I think most people felt this, he's just so affable. He has this relaxed, kind of joyful way of bringing the world in and processing it. And I always asked him about that. He said, uh, he said it's all, all an exterior show and on the inside he's a mess <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i'll tell you he hit it awfully well 
when we were first working together, I mean, this was an original screenplay and, and then he, he optioned it and then set to work with me on how to make it into a Hollywood movie, which it wasn't really. And there was both of us being excited about the project, both of us being, I don't know, just kind of nice Jewish boys, I guess you would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were similar types and we were both kind of folkies and there was at least one party where we were playing guitars and singing and uh, all the, the things that you might have sung <laughs> in Greenwich Village in the day. Harold is a bit, a little bit older than me, maybe 10 years older than me, but we still shared that. And it was a slightly difficult working relationship in that we were both trying to make it good, but it was hard to know what to let go of and what to hang on to. And so these were interesting conversations. I think it was all respectful. In fact, there was one point in the process where all the other helpers and assistants and note takers and opinioners uh, were out of the room. And it was just me and Harold kind of deciding which pieces we were going to work on and making final decisions before the actual production. It was just nice because he could have completely sidelined me because I was a young writer and I was trying to figure out what would work for him. And he knew what would work for him and he could have just, and he's an uh, excellent writer and he didn't need me to be there, but I think he wanted to, to bring it along in the, in a nice family way, everybody together. And we did the best we could with that. Most remarkable about Harold was I think later on, I mean, as the, the movie became more popular and part of the culture, he and I would touch base about once a year either see each other or just talk on the phone and say, can you believe this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and when he came, actually came through Santa Fe once when he was working on year one, his final movie. And we got to spend a whole bunch of time together and it was, it was just so, you know, we realized we'd known each other for quite a long time and talked about our families over the years. And it was just, it was just lovely. So even though there were, subsequent conversations after that and, and i tried to see him toward the end but but the timing didn't quite work out and that was unfortunate but but my my really final time with him was quite excellent and very warm could you imagine anybody other than bill murray playing phil connors well, now it's kind of hard <laughs> because it's so he's so associated with the movie. Now, I've had the experience of working on the musical where we were retelling the story in a, you know, in a different medium and we had the guy we wound up with both for the London production and on Broadway uh, named Andy Carl was not anything like Bill Murray and yet he was wonderful. It worked like gangbusters is just a really fun character. We had to alter it a little bit. Bill is a more, you know, laconic, terse. <laughs> you know, he doesn't he doesn't need to say a lot to get a lot across. And the style of his commentary on the rest of the world during that movie 
is not the, the kind of character who would break into song. And so we kind of actually I thought about maybe it would be kind of fun to have a musical where the main guy, everybody in town is singing and having a wonderful time. And he's the only one who refuses to sing (laughs) um, until, you know, he finally starts to change over and find his voice, which would have been a lovely idea. But we all agreed that you can't have a Broadway musical where the main character doesn't sing for three quarters of it. (laughs) (laughs) So instead, we changed the character. And made him just a little bit more snide and 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 a little bit more extroverted and and uh, in in people's face and that was a fun character. So Andy was great. And even before we had cast Andy, we'd done a bunch of workshops and the fills that we used for those workshops as we were learning and building the show were also quite wonderful. So. You know, I love Bill Murray, and I think he's great in this, and I think he will always be remembered for that role. But yeah, I can imagine other people. <laughs> like who? Well, when we, you know, each person would have made it his own. One of the things that I was pushing for back in the day was they asked me who I pictured as Phil Connors, and I said, a young Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> It was exactly who I pictured. Harold said, I don't think he's available. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to think of somebody else. And I remember saying I wanted, I preferred an actor who could do comedy to a comedian who could act. Because I felt like the role required it. And so people like Tom Hanks and Kevin Kline were people whose names came up. I can't remember who else. Those were people I thought of. And they would have brought their own thing to it. And they probably would have been good. But there was something very special about Bill Murray. You cannot deny that. When the movie was being made, were you a witness to any of that? I was there for the first couple of weeks of pre-production and then the first week of, of shooting. After that, it, it didn't feel like I needed to be there. I, I had other things that I felt were pulling on me, and those guys seemed to have the whole thing in hand. It would have been fun. That would have been my first, like, full, full-on, you know, three-month feature film commitment kind of part of the circus thing. But I had just had a baby daughter, and we had just moved to Santa Fe, and I felt like I wanted to establish my values as an adult as somebody who would choose his family over his work if that were the choice and it just felt right to me it was the right decision for me so you know they asked me to stay but i said no thank you and moved on so i only saw the first uh, you know a couple of scenes being shot and it was cold as fuck too i'll tell you that (laughs) i've i've never been colder in my life and i've lived in a lot of cold places There was something about that month in northern Illinois of that year that just had a certain quality of bone chillingness. (laughs) So standing around outside watching them shoot was was not really that entertaining. (laughs) I see. (laughs) And if you and if you've ever been on a movie set, it's it's not you know, I mean you have experiences and all that, but for the most part it's it's watching paint dry. Nothing happens. For, for hours. <laughs> yeah, it's boring. <laughs> yeah. 
I wanted to get your thoughts on the use of Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's brother, yeah. uh, for Buster. What do you think yeah. of that? It, you know what? It didn't even register on me that it was his brother until some point during the shooting. But it didn't. It I, I he was just fine for the character. He's a he's a he was good for the part. You know, I, I didn't have any real thoughts about it. I thought it's kind of cool working with your family. I didn't feel like he was. You know, we could have found somebody better. I actually I spent some time with both of them in New York, which was it was really lovely. It's not you know, I'm not gonna pretend like these are my best friends and we hang out all the time. But when when Bill um and Brian came to see the show in New York, I was sort of their host. So it was it was fun to be with them. And it's you know, they're brothers. It's fun seeing people who know each other that well. The process of creating the musical was that very challenging? It was challenging, but I'll tell you, it was pure joy. Partially because I, it was, I came in with a lot of apprehension of, about whether I was the right person to do it because I didn't want to blow the project. I felt like this was the, I, I'm the keeper of the flame for whatever reason. It's mine to, to do with as I will. And so. I felt a responsibility to do a good job and I really wanted to work on it, but I didn't want to ruin it. So at first I was apprehensive, but it didn't take long for me to realize, first of all, that I completely have the skill set. So I was, I, even though I didn't have a ton of experience in writing musicals, I had ton of experience writing and writing scenes and writing characters and understanding music because I've been a songwriter for many years. And it turned out to be something that I totally knew how to do. And then the other thing was my partners. They're Matthew Warchus is, is uh, an unbelievably strong director. And Tim Minchin is an unbelievably strong writer of music and lyrics. And they're both delightful people. And we all got along. And it was instant kind of friendship. And so, and the two of them had already established this when they worked on Matilda together, but they made me feel welcome. And I was part of the party. And we were together working on this for almost five years. It was just, just wonderful. I loved it. And I liked, I liked revisiting the themes of the, the movie. I wanted, you know, to, to very carefully give people the same experience of the movie and the musical, that, that sense of thinking you have it sized up and then, you know, um, being delighted by some new twist that you hadn't anticipated and for it to keep going like that and then for it to reveal itself to have much more emotional depth than you would have thought from the beginning. So I wanted to do all that, but I also wanted to give people little little bits of things from the movie specifically that they would like, but not too many of them, and surprise people with other things. They think they they know what they're going to get, and it's a little bit different. And finally, to to in some way touch on a lot of the themes that have been I've either figured out that it, through talking to people of twenty years about the movie and getting their experiences and their stories and their relationship with the movie. A lot of themes that we wanted to 
bring into the play to make it an even deeper experience for, for the audience. So there was a lot and we crafted it all together in a really delightful way. So very proud of the work and I'm happy with the result too. You mentioned a moment ago that you're a songwriter. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, if I were any good, you probably would have heard all the songs, but <laughs> it's mostly just for my pleasure and my friends and family. And I, I don't have not in any way tried to make a career out of it. I'm just trying to amuse myself. And, you know, a movie project could take anywhere from three months to, to several years. Working always on the same thing. And I have to break that up somehow. So if I get an idea for something like a little essay or a short story, or most conveniently for me, a song, I can, I can satisfy myself to create that, you know, in an afternoon or in a week. And then I have something else that I've made. So it's sort of part of my process and part of my joy. And I don't know, maybe someday I'll get good at it. <laughs> Do you write on the guitar? Mm-hmm, mostly. I play a few instruments poorly, but I play the guitar the least poorly and feel the most comfortable with it. So, yeah, I'm almost always composing on the guitar. Well, would you like to play us something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how nice of you. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of, like, quasi-produced pieces I could send you if you want. Yeah. Absolutely. I would be curious to hear. Right. That, that always sharing with my friends for their amusement. Um, <laughs> if I try to make it sound any more grandiose than that, you will certainly be disappointed because I, I encounter so many people who are just brilliant musicians and composers and songwriters and, and singers and performers. And I'm not one of those. I'm, I'm the amateur who gets to just sort of in joy being on the edges. <laughs> I love to hear people sing, even people who are not singers. I just, I, I love music. That's how I feel. Yeah. Apparently Bill Murray feels that way too. <laughs> he does like to sing. I, I don't know how, how he wound up this latest tour of his seems to, to delight him for sure. And I think people should do those things that delight them. Singing is a wonderful enterprise. I love to sing. I have learned not to be too embarrassed to sing in front of people. <laughs> do you think that screenplay writers get enough respect? Uh, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, within the industry, probably not. They don't have power, really. And... You know, most of their hard work gets credited to the, the people who are in front of the camera. And everybody feels like they know English and they know how to type. So why are we paying these writers to do it for us? <laughs> there's, there's this built in kind of resentment. I think that that's people say they, they love writers and, and they're, I'm a writer's agent. I'm a writer's producer. Uh, you know, I love writers. It's like, well, I don't know. We're kind of a pain in the ass too, because we like things to be perfect and the way we plan them. And it's a very collaborative art making movies. And 
everybody has to give and take some. And some writers are better at that than others, I guess. And some producers are better at believing in the writers and others are more interested in just whatever is quick and easy and they can make a, um, a movie out of it. Not even a good movie. Let's just get a movie made. So I don't know. Everybody feels like they could use more respect, right? I don't, I don't know <laughs> if anyone thinks they've got too much. I think that the, the projects that are very original, not in, in style, but original in concept, those movies, the writers are recognized, I think. People do notice. And that's a good thing. What misconceptions do you think there are about screenplay writers? Um, I don't know that we all are floating in the swimming pool in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What are misconceptions about screenwriters? I don't know. I don't know what they conceive of us. I don't know really what our place is exactly right now. I was busy teaching for a few years and haven't, between that and the musical, I haven't really had my head in the game. I'm just sort of returning to that now. And those things change. So I'm not really sure where the writers are now in people's imaginations. Well, you just said uh, hanging out in a swimming pool in L.A., and I remember at the top of the interview, you were mentioning that you had you had left L.A. So why did you leave L.A.? Oh, that was totally just a life choice. Yeah, there were little things that just made me feel like this was not the community I wanted to make my life in. And... I didn't want my children's lives to be tied up in it. It just didn't feel like me and Louise, the, the life we were building together, it did not feel like an L.A. life. We, we, the place we looked at before we wound up moving to L.A. when I sold a screenplay uh, was Missoula, Montana. You know, these sort of small, highly cultured mountain university-type towns felt right to us. And it turned out Missoula wasn't the right idea, but it turned out that Santa Fe was. So it really wasn't, um, I don't know, I, I, I didn't like that when, when you meet somebody who you really like, they could very easily live an hour and a half away. And everything was about cars and traffic. And, you know, all these are lifestyle things. I loved being in the, the city where my industry was happening. It was really kind of exciting. But in the end, it just wasn't, it wasn't the life. I mean, when our daughter was one, we were part of a little baby group and we, I could feel that these, these birthday parties for the one year olds were already getting competitive. Hmm. <laughs> you know, who's going to have a clown and who's going to have a jumpy tent and who's going to, fly everybody to Barbados. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but that just didn't feel like us. And, and I'm, there are tons of people who are like us who managed to stick it out and live there. And you know, we thought about it, but we also said, let's not just assume we have to be here. So yeah, we decided to move on. Do you think that in this life, it's more important to be humble or more important to be confident? Well, I'm both. In equal proportion, <laughs> I'm I'm uh, 
completely convinced of of my incredible worth uh, and I want to share it with people and I'm completely convinced of my lack of worth and and how much luck is involved in this industry so you know I don't know which is more important you you pull out whichever one you need at the time we yeah. all try to just survive right yeah it seems like you have a kind of relaxed approach in some respects to work. It always kind of works out that way. There have been times when I was more intense about it, intense in my output, intense in my wanting to sell it and get it out there. But uh, I don't know. I guess I've just developed a patience about it. And also I've had a knowledge from very early on that I don't operate as well under high anxiety as I do under more relaxed uh, state. Um, I, I'm more creative, actually, when I'm more relaxed, and I'm happier when I'm more relaxed. And so I decided to assume that I could pursue my life this way and it would be fine. And it has been. <laughs> I could have made more money and I could have made more movies, but Instead, I sleep well at night. I haven't made a whole lot of huge compromises, just little ones, and, and it seems to suit me. What is the best thing about being Danny Rubin? Well, I've been totally lucky. This groundhog thing has its associated my name with that movie uh, and that story. And so it's kind of amazing to be really a small town humble guy and still be able to go places and people know who I am and want to talk to me it's like that's kind of amazing i spent a lot of time with bill murray when we were first working on the 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 movie and one of the things i realized is how difficult it is to be as famous as he is and that was you know 25 years ago um now he's he's even more legendary and it's just difficult to be a public person. And I think I have accidentally slid into this place where I get to meet a lot of these amazing people and people seem to have some interest in me from time to time, but not so much that it's a burden. And I get to live my life without the oppression of being a very popular person. So yeah, I feel pretty good in my own skin right now. Well, one of the things about communication and technology today is just how quickly and how vast a message can spread. And so, for my last question, I'm going to leave it very open-ended. Just give you the stage. What would you say to our audience? Oh, I know what I'd say. I love that Groundhog Day as a, an expression has come into the lexicon and people are starting to recognize and label their experiences of repetition in their endless cycles that are kind of depressing and cycles that they want to get out of. So I acknowledge that, that that's a really cool thing, but people ought to go to the next step. Phil got out of his loop and he did it. Well, I'm not even going to tell you how he did it. You go watch the movie. You figure out how he did it. <laughs> but there isn't 
a problem, an intractable loop, I think, that people could not get out of if they just pay attention in the way that Phil winds up paying attention. I think just labeling the problem is helpful, but people shouldn't sit on their despair and say, well, it's Groundhog Day again. There are ways to get past it. I feel that very strongly. Wow. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I've really you ask good questions. Well, <laughs> well, thank you. And for all the listeners out there, if they want some more information, it's dannyrubin.com. Danny, R-U-B-I-N, dannyrubin.com. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Well, thanks, Paul. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you, too. You should come down here sometime. Will do. I've been planning a road trip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're welcome. Take care. All right, till next time. Danny Rubin was kind enough to share his music with us, and one of the songs, Say Goodbye, fits perfectly at the end of the show. Written and performed by Danny Rubin, we leave you with Say Goodbye.
Watch those flurries fall, counted cracks and walls. I pinched myself and made me cry. Oh, it's so hard to believe this is happening to me. I never thought I'd say goodbye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.